Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host. And joining me are February guest co-hosts, once again, Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey. Woohoo! Hey, Davey. Thanks for having me uh, back. Man, thanks for coming back. And uh, those of you guys who don't know Aubrey, you can check out her interview with us on episode 75. But we have brought her back to be a guest co-host for the whole month of February. And uh, it's going to be a good one. Today's interview is awesome. I mean, they're all awesome. I yeah. feel like we're saying that all the time. They are but, all awesome. But this one's really good. And I like this one because, and I know that you probably like this one as well, because yes. it just <laughs> it hits on so many lanes of me and you, right? It's like totally. the idea of lament and theology of suffering, but also su- coming from a preacher and a pastor. Yeah. Mark Rogop is our guest today. Yeah. I love what he has to say about the topic of lament. It's Ooh. incredible. He's a pastor here in Indianapolis um, of a fairly large uh very influential church in our city. And um, the the way that, what's interesting is the way I came across his topics of lament and his writing and stuff like that was someone told me that he released a book on lament and that he actually talked a little bit about our story. And oh, wow. uh, so I knew, I, you know, I was familiar with Mark and, and the ministry there at College Park, but then I started digging in and going, wait, he must have a story too mm. to be talking about a topic of lament. And then I knew that he was such a great Bible teacher. I'm like, this guy is going to have some really rich things to say on the theology of suffering. Yeah. It's like the perfect and, storm of, of how to lead people through a good theology yes, of suffering. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, you know, what, what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit before we jump onto this interview is I feel like that for me personally, my preaching is, has changed. Uh, the way that I minister to people has changed since walking through adversity and hardship. I wonder if yeah. you feel that that's the case for you. And, and if so, how, how do you feel like it's, it's shifted as you've seen some seasons of adversity in your life? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. I feel like before our season which I won't go into now, but our, our season of suffering and hardship and lament, I probably was preaching from a place of, like, I wanted people to know the Bible. And mm. I still feel that way. But I, I wanted, like, a, a mental understanding. I want you to understand these specific things about Scripture, about ancient Near Eastern context. Yeah. Um, some application, of course, but, like, it was more like a mental ascent. Mm. And I think after suffering, I have moved in my preaching, those things are still there, but um, I want you to understand intimacy with Jesus. Wow. I want you to understand that God is close to the brokenhearted. And wow. so I tend to almost ever, every sermon that I preach, I'm filtering it through that lens, of course, if it's there scripturally, but like even the application, like there are people in the audience that are always hurting. They are walking yeah. with someone who's mm-hmm. hurting. I have to talk to them about intimacy with Jesus. Wow. You know, and what it's like when you feel unseen and where is God in this? So I feel like yeah. I almost always go there. What about you? Oh, that's so good. Well, I 100% agree because at the end of the day, you and I both know that when you walk through something really difficult, there is there's an element at which the, the ministry that happens to your soul mm. is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. It's, an, right. ex, it's an experiential ministry. Right yeah. now, yeah. certainly you can read books on suffering. You can read other, you know, listen to other people's stories, stuff, the resources that we provide, all that stuff is really great to help kind of fill in the gaps there. But at the end of the day, the only thing that really, truly is going to heal your heart is an experience, a profound experience yeah. in the, in, in an intimate way with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's exactly what I have felt as well as, you know, before, uh, before uh, Amanda passed away, my preaching was kind of coming from this place of like, I want to make sure I, I hit every point, mm-hmm. I, I knock out of the park every transition, make sure I'm yeah. flowing properly. I want this to be on some level kind of impressive. <laughs> right, You right. know, I want to, you know, and a, a part of that, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 3, so I'm definitely in that performance mentality, but I want it yeah. to be impressive because I wanted people to want to listen. And ultimately, because yeah. I wanted them to, you know, yes, I wanted them to learn more about God and want to learn more about God and be inspired to do so. But then after Amanda passed away, there was a major shift that happened in me where I walked out on stage less to impress and mm. more to just help. 
Yeah. Because again, like what you said, I, it, it gave me this acute recognition that there were people in this audience that were hurting deeply and they needed a word from God, the same word, right? right? The, 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 the logos, the word of yes. God that's, that breathes life into all of creation, right? That yeah. same breath can breathe life into someone who's hurting yeah. and feeling like they're dying on the inside because of pain and suffering. And so yeah. there's something that just really deepens experientially um, your the way that you minister to people. Yes, because you, of the way you've been ministered yes. to by the Holy Spirit through your own suffering. Yeah, exactly. I totally and, agree with that. And what's funny is it's par- partly it's because you're like, okay, I can't do this for you. Yeah. And you kind of get out of the way and let God do it. You know? Right, right. Which is a good place to be, right? If you're yeah. in ministry or even if you're not in ministry, I, I think it's a different way to walk with people who are suffering to not mm-hmm. be the one to try to fix it or to make them believe right. a certain thing, but just to uh, remind that person of intimacy with Jesus and keep kind of gently, gently yeah. pointing them back to Jesus. Oh, that's so good. You're just being a a form or a version of Jesus for them by saying, hey, yeah. I'm just going to walk with you in this. Yeah. I'm not going to try yeah. to solve it. I'm not going to try to explain it away. I'm just going right. to walk with you. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I'm going to be quiet. Mm. Sometimes I'm going to cry with you. I'm not going to like try to wrap it all up and make it real pretty for you, but I'm just going to be there with you and be Jesus for you when you feel like you have no access to Jesus. That's so good. Wow. That's so good. Well, this is going to be an incredible interview. You guys are going to absolutely love this time that I have with Mark Rogop. But before we jump into that, we've got a couple of things that we want to bring your attention to. Yeah. If you would... uh... Go on iTunes and rate and review us because we're super encouraged when we hear from you. And then follow us on Instagram if you're not. It's at yeah. Nothing Is Wasted Ministries, and we would love to interact with you there. You can kind of find out about our giveaways and our recent podcast episodes and everything that's going on with Nothing Is Wasted Ministries there at Instagram at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. While you're taking care of your housekeeping and you're on your computer on the internet, make sure that you also go to our new stories platform. Uh, This has been really awesome as people have begun submitting their stories. And this is just another way for us to share stories. I mean, we're continually getting inundated with story after story after story, um, and some of which we put on the podcast and some of which we share on this stories platform, nothingiswasted.com slash stories. And again, I just believe profoundly that other people's stories are a fantastic way to derive um, inspiration and for your faith to be bolstered. So go and read these stories, submit your story as well. If you, if you don't mind being uh, courageous and vulnerable to say, hey, here's what God has done in my life. And we'd love to feature that on our stories platform. You can also email us at hello at nothingiswasted.com to um, you know submit any suggestions or anything that you want, but p- potentially some guest suggestions. Maybe you know of someone who has a great story. We've definitely been able to yeah. acquire some interviews like that as well. Some of our best interviews have been people going, hey, have you heard this story? You mm. should get in touch with them or here's a contact. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so um, we'd love your help in that. Um, speaking of stories, I would love for you to hear Mark's fantastic story. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to your interview, Davey, with Mark Vrogop. Mark, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, Davey. Thank you. Well, man, we've gotten to spend a couple times of just sitting down having coffee, and I've gotten to just sit under your teaching, and man, it's just such an honor to be able to have you here in person in our studio slash office slash whatever else we want to make it and talk about this this topic of lament and suffering and pain. But why don't you just uh, help the listener out by talking a little bit about who, who you are, what's your family like, what do you do? Let's get just a little bit of a scoop on the story of Mark Rogop before we dive into to kind of your backstory. Sure, happy to. It's a bestseller. It's, uh, <laughs> it's incredible, yeah. So, hey, I'm uh, married to a wife. Her name's Sarah. Uh, I have a couple of kids, four, um, three who are adult uh, children, one who's married, and then a uh, daughter who's uh, 13 years old. So we kind of span the gap from 23 23, 19, and 13 are the ages of our kids. So I'm kind of old. I feel old. <laughs> and at the same time, I have my feet kind of in both worlds of uh, adult boy world and, you know, junior high girl world. So it's, wow. it's a great, uh, great experience. Love our kids. 
Um, serve at the church of uh, College Park Church here in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Been here uh, now 11 years. Before that, um, I was a teaching pastor in Western Michigan in Holland uh, mm-hmm. area. And um, yeah, I just love uh, serving the church and seeing what God does through his word and have been involved in pastoral ministry now for just about 25 years in a primary teaching and uh, in leadership role in two very unique churches, uh, both of which... Um, you know, needed uh, pastoral help and uh, growth and um, some pastoral care, and both of which became just great communities in which we could raise our family and follow Jesus together. Yeah. Well, I know you came into College Park in a very pivotal time, and um, I believe, how long have you been at College Park? 11 years. 11 years. Okay, so a few years before we came, I remember coming and visiting Indianapolis before we, when we were, you know, feeling the call to come up here and plant and uh, visiting College Park and hearing you teach, and I was just, I was like, man, this is, this is someone who holds a high, high regard for the Word of God, and I really valued that. And I value that in, as well in, in this book that you've written, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, because you dive into uh, topics that oftentimes in church we don't like to talk about. Right. Oftentimes we don't want to talk. We want to kind of keep this idea of pain and suffering at bay so often in church you hear this message or this rhetoric of blessing, and uh, it seems like the message we could be portraying is things are, as long as you follow Jesus, things are going to go well for you. And that's not the case. It's not what we see in scripture. And so you've had some, uh, some things happen in your life that have really kind of crystallized this, this idea of a theology of pain and suffering, a theodicy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so why don't you do this? Let's, before we dive in and talk about this, this book that you've pinned all this in, let's talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it. Tell us a little bit of your story as you've kind of journeyed this road of trial and hardship uh, with your family. Yeah, happy to. It's both a personal story and a pastoral one. And mm-hmm. what happened is that my theology collided with a personal tragedy. And what's great about what happened in that is my theology held and in fact um, helped me to even understand God in a new way mm-hmm. uh, in terms of that theology being tested. So the story is, um, you know, so we have twins and for us, pregnancy came quick, fast and in multiple forms. So Hmm. my wife carried our twin boys to 39 and a half weeks. They were born uh, right on time, six pounds, seven ounces, six pounds, 11 ounces. We went home two days later. She was an athlete. Her womb was huge. She was just a few centimeters away from winning kind of the office record for the largest womb they'd ever seen. So like she did pregnancy really, really well. Got pregnant again, another son that was born, you know, I mean, it was hard labor and delivery, but everybody was healthy. And then in our third pregnancy, my wife just had this sense all the way through the pregnancy that something was wrong. And, um, I, you know, I just kept encouraging her, praying with her and everything else. But about uh, three or four days before delivery, she woke me up early one morning and said, Mark, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And what was crazy was prior to that time, I felt like the Lord was preparing me for some kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. It was this weird thing that I was like, Lord, I feel like I need to know more about this. And it was kind of a nervous approach to it because, man, what if this is actually going to be true? So my wife goes um, downstairs and um, she, um, after telling me that, and I immediately got on my knees and I said, Lord, please, not this, uh. not this. Uh, she hadn't felt the baby move all night. And uh, so uh, long story short, we went to the doctor later in the afternoon and what felt like an eternity sort of moment, doctor searching for heartbeat, putting the little monitor on her womb, searching, searching, can't find a heartbeat and uh, confirmed that uh, just a few days before delivery, our daughter um, had died in utero. Mm -hmm. So then my wife gave birth to our lifeless nine pound daughter. Her name was Sylvia. And uh, so that moment was a grief like none other that I had ever experienced in my life before. And then we go back to the real world after her funeral and everything else of trying to put our life back together, suffered multiple miscarriages, even mm-hmm. a, um, a pregnancy that, that terminated, but the womb kept growing or the home kept growing. So it, it's all the positive numbers were going up. It felt like a real cruel joke um, from God. Um, And so in the midst of that, we're trying to grieve. I'm trying to pastor a church, and I'm trying to deal with the sorrow in my soul that is just so scary. 
And yet I also found that people around us weren't really comfortable with our pain. They didn't know, they didn't know what to do with our pain, and nor did we know fully what to do with it. And mm. as I began to study the scriptures and begin to pray in a particular way, over the years, I began to discover that there's actually a language for what we were going through. Mm. It's called lament. At the time, I had no idea what it was. But now looking back, I can see that the Lord was using this language to help uh, us walk through a season where we could talk to, honestly to God about our sorrow. And so Sylvia's death produced an opportunity to test our theology and also to discover mm. a new language for how to talk to God and to other people. And um, it was a very, very challenging uh, season, and yet one that we can look back now and see that God was using it both for our good mm. and for his glory. Mm. It's funny you said this... this this incident tested your theology, yeah. you know, prior to this as a pastor, obviously I mean, you, you attended Bible school, I'm sure, and right. seminary. And yep. so you had to construct a theology. Right. Uh, you learned a theology of suffering. You learned how to help other people who were suffering. Had you up to this point, had you and your family gone through anything this devastating before that had tested it? Or was this kind of the first you feel like, I'm sure you, there was probably some minor trials, so to speak, relative to what you experienced with Sylvia but um, was there anything prior to, you know, Sylvia's there, death? There that... was. There were family situations, some deaths in the family, some um, other issues that were deeply painful. But this was this was different, mm. um, and it was um, also really frightening because those other situations had um, an end in sight, or they related to other people. But this was mm. us, this was our marriage. Yeah. And frankly, one of the scariest things was, is my wife ever going to be happy again? Yeah. Is laughter ever going to be in our home? Yeah. And what if, um, there's no child that follows? What if this is the, the end of story? Mm. Um, and so, you know, in God's kind providence, that wasn't the case, but that created a whole series of questions and struggles mm. of, can we really trust God in this moment? And then, you know, uh, week after week, Sunday still comes. Yeah, right. And so we got to do, um, you know, parent dedications with newborn children uh -huh. and go to hospital visits and celebrate with families and pray with infertile couples and teach at the time through the book of Hebrews mm. and this sort of, uh, gutsy, really challenging journey journey uh, was very difficult. Mm. And then every once in a while when I'd be just like gut level honest about what I was wrestling with, it like freaked people out. Mm. They were like, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. And so it just, it just seemed to me that the church in general is just very unfamiliar with this category of lament, even though a third of the Psalms are laments. Right. And it's just, so it just seemed to me like we're, I felt like we're missing something. And lament was kind of the the missing piece that yeah. kind of put it all together. And when I've talked to people about this, invariably the most common comment related to the material that I've written is, you just explained the last three years of my life. Wow. Because most people don't study lament on the front end. Right. They read it on the back end and they're like, oh, okay, this oh, is what's been that going makes, on. Right, exactly. They'd see it in retrospect and they go, oh, I understand now what my soul has been crying to do. Right. Because my soul's been created to do this. Right but I didn't have any language for it because right. I didn't have any kind of construct for it on the front right. end. Why do you suppose people were, you know, you said when you got gut level honest yep. with people, um, and I'm not sure if you were referring to in the pulpit, out of the pulpit, both and whatever. Both, yeah. Why do you suppose people got, they were, they were frightened by that or intimidated by that? I think because grief is scary. And I think uh, mm -hmm. even when we have a friend who's going through a deep and dark season, their sorrow is a deep reminder that something's really wrong with the world. Yeah. And there are things in life that I can't handle. And grief is one of them. It's, it is not tame. It's not linear. You, mm -hmm. Maybe there's stages of grief, maybe. But the fact of the matter is, is when you're in the middle of it, it is um, something that is not manageable. Mm -hmm. And you never know when it's going to come. You right. know, the hymn writer says, sorrows like sea billows roll. That's a really accurate description description that yeah. you could just be um, in, in some birthday party or a Christmas gathering or a particular meal that you're enjoying. And that memory cues like a whole set of emotions. And all of a sudden, like it's over, like your evening's right. done because grief has just entered the equation. Right. I think people know that and that's just scary. And then they just, we just maybe have a poorly developed understanding of what true biblical Christianity is. Mm. And we appropriately emphasize the joyful side, but we don't understand that what it means to be sorrowful and yet hopeful. Mm. And 
the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we we don't typically think of it in that category. We don't sing about it like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we don't teach about it like that. Most of most people, at least American Christians, um, would rather hear about some sort of triumphalistic. Mm. Um, we're going to make it, and we certainly are. But the mm. valleys are real. So right. I think there's just a there's an absence of a correct understanding of what the fully orbed Christian life really should be like. Yeah. Well, especially if you look back at like you know some of the heroes of our faith, the ancients. I mean, Hebrews twelve talks about this that there are folks who they didn't see on this side of eternity. The, the triumph right. from their tragedy. You know, we can, we can read stories of, you know, stories of David and Joseph, Joseph, especially, oh my gosh, you see at the end of Joseph's life that he named his sons Ephraim and Manasseh because God made him forget his sorrows, right? There was so much joy that came out of it that he right. kind of forgot, forgot all of those and he was fruitful in the land. And so we can preach these sermons and go, wow, God's going to bring you through this like long, arduous process. And on the other side, you're going to be, you know, you're, he's going to see you victorious. He's going to see you triumphant out of your tragedy. But there are so many cases now and in our history of, of our faith where people don't see it. They, right. they, they, they die not seeing the promise that was given to them and, until we get to, you know, we see Jesus face to face and all of our answers become clear. And, and that right there is, is hard for people. Uh, it sure is. And that's why I said it tested our theology, because at the end yeah. of the day, it's Christians who believe in the plan of, of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Yeah. And it's Christians who know what the end story is, but we live in the gap mm. between uh, promise made and promise fulfilled. And sometimes promise fulfilled doesn't come in your earthly experience. And so therefore you're trusting that God's word is in fact true. Right. And those promises are actionable and can be relied upon, mm. even if the expectation of how those promises were going to be filled in your life doesn't actually become true. And so wow. part of the challenge with suffering is that it challenges, I mean, who really is in charge of my life? And yeah. who, who's going to write this story? Yeah. And who has the pen in their hand? Mm. And, um, you know, no human being wants to relinquish the pen, but suffering takes it out of our hand mm. and reminds us, you're not writing the story on your own. Wow. So that's an interesting analogy. You know, God is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? What would you say, and this is just kind of an aside, what's our role in it then? If God's role is to write our story, right. right? If he has the pen in his hand, what would be our role? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And frankly, there's a bit of a mystery to that, isn't there? <laughs> um, because at one level... You I'm asking that question, I'm like, huh, I don't even, I don't know the answer yeah, to that. I'm yeah. not even leaving you with a question <laughs> yeah. right now. Like, yeah. Mark, please impart some wisdom. Yeah. What's my role? Let me invite you to never come to an ordination <laughs> council to ask a question that you don't know the answer to. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, that is part of the challenge because at one level, you always want to avoid a couple of ditches, the ditch of yeah. fatalism. Like, well, if I'm not in control of my life, then it's just, I'm going to be in a little red wagon. God pulls me along. Or on the other ditch, no, I am 100% mm -hmm. in control of my life. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in between there, I think, is a right understanding of Christianity to say, look, God's in charge. Mm -hmm. God's working out a plan, and I'm a part of this. And somehow the decisions that I make fit into his overarching plan. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's things about my life that I know that God moved in spite of the decisions that I made. Yeah. I made dumb decisions, right. and God turned it into something great. Or I didn't even have a decision. Like, for instance, in the, the death of our daughter, I mean, if I had had to make the decision, mm -hmm. is she going to live or is she going to die? No question. I'm yeah. choosing a live baby, 100%. Right. And so I have to rest in God's choices on my behalf and the things that he allows in my life mm -hmm. and the things he even allows um, the, the devil to do because somehow all of those things work out for his glory and my good. Mm -hmm. And when people struggle with that, we have to go right back to the cross mm -hmm. and to realize, look, the worst moment in human history from a human standpoint yep. was the crucifixion of Jesus. And the moment that the devil thought he had totally taken advantage of God's plan. And here God flips the script mm. and the devil's plans actually turn into the redemption of the world. Yeah, right. And I just I love the way that we can think about God's purpose in suffering and hardship as a matter of reference point. If you look at the cross from just Good Friday and there's no Easter, yeah. it looks like well, God's completely out of control. Jesus just lost. But if you look at it from Easter Sunday, oh, here's how this all fits into mm -hmm. God's plan. And so I think our 
decisions relate to the ways in which we both cooperate with God's will, we participate in, and then in some cases, um, things are happening that um, we have no control over and no ability to manipulate. Mm. The difference between those, I think that's one of the great mysteries in the Bible. Yeah. And I think it's there to even remind us on a regular basis that you you can't um, put God into an equation. Right. Because if you could, then you own the equation and you own God and nobody owns God. Wow. Yeah. So you, you referenced earlier that one of the questions that you had, especially as you guys after um, losing Sylvia and, and um, wrestling with miscarriage yep. and wondering, is this going to be the end of our story? You said, is this some kind of sick trick or sick right. ploy of God? Right. This was one of these deep questions that sometimes you would almost feel as a pastor, you know, Can you say embarrassed that? or ashamed to say that out right. loud, but these are the things that you're right. feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, what did, what did you reconcile when it come, when it came to that? Yeah. Well, I don't know that we reconciled. We, um, we just kind of made it through that season. And um, then I found things in the Bible that was like, wait a minute, that's like what I've said before. And mm. I'll give you a few examples. So um, after a couple of uh, miscarriages, we then had what was called a blighted ovum. So a positive pregnancy test, numbers are skyrocketing. Yes, we're pregnant, we're celebrating, You know, we're getting baby stuff out. We yeah. think, hey, we're beyond where these other miscarriages happen. We go into the doctor's office, he does an ultrasound, we're expecting to see a heartbeat, yeah. and this ashen look on the doctor's face happens. And my wife's like, what? And I'm thinking she's overreacting. I'm like, honey, no, I'm sure everything's fine. And the doctor says, no, actually, something's wrong. And I'm like, are you kidding? Mm. We're in the same room, by the way, that we found out that Sylvia had died, <sighs> same spot. And uh, so he says, you have what's called a blighted ovum. There's no baby, but there's a, a home there for the baby. Um, and eventually that home's going to stop growing. But right now you look and feel pregnant, but you're not. Mm. So we go out of the doctor's office. We get into the car. And the question is, what do you pray in a moment like that? Mm-hmm. You know you're supposed to pray. Mm-hmm. And here's what my wife prayed. God, I know you're not mean, mm. but it feels like it today. Mm. And in that moment, what she was praying, as I understood it later, is a lament mm. where, for example, in Psalm 77, the psalmist, when he, when he, he says, when I think of God, about God, I moan. And then he asks six rhetorical questions. And a couple of them are, has the steadfast love of the Lord forever ceased? Mm. Has he forgotten to be gracious? Is his promise at an end for all times? Or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, uh, will you forsake me forever? Mm. Mm. How long must you hide your face from me? So those questions become the platform of verbalizing our sorrow for the purpose of not staying in those sorrows, but so that we can then renew our trust and hope in God. And so that's what I mean, that there are times and circumstances where it felt like, man, God, I know you're not mean, but this feels mean. And yeah. what, I, what I think is some Christians are like, you can't say that to God. Yeah. And when I look at the Psalms, I'm like, well, like the psalmist <laughs> talked to God like that. Now, don't get me wrong. You can't stay there. Right. But to use those deep, difficult questions and to know that God can handle those for the purpose of then moving mm. us to a point of trust, I think is the essence of what lament is meant mm. to be and to do for believers. And it's also, I think, the sort of gutsy honesty of how theology actually works out in the context mm. of suffering. God can handle those questions. My theology can handle those questions. I have an answer for those questions, but those are still questions. Mm. They're real. And some Christians think it's an either or choice. If you have a good theology, you don't ask those questions. Mm. I, no, I think Lament says, yeah, you ask those questions and your theology leads you to the right conclusion. Wow, wow. Would you say that, um, that the absence of lament in our lives, that it actually contributes more to us being stuck? Yes, I do. How so? I just think we're unfamiliar with the language. And as a result, when we see or hear somebody lamenting, we think they're doing something wrong because we've Mm -hmm. not seen it before. Or because we don't um, sing songs that have a lament orientation to them, um, we we just don't think that worship can be anything but celebratory. That's Mm -hmm. probably an overstatement to make my point. But I think many people associate worship with mm. high energy, triumphal, we're going to win. And is that mm. worship? Yes. But is that all of worship? 
No, mm. it's not. And that's why I think it's instructive to realize that a third of the official songbook of God's people were laments because there's a lot of pain in life. And yeah. I think the challenge then is, and I've talked to suffering people, and I've been there, where you come into church and what's going on in the context of either the tone of the sermon or the tone of the prayers or the tone of the songs is like alien to you. Mm. And as a result, you just feel like where all these people are, I'm not. And as a result, you feel like I'm the only one who feels this way, further isolating you and your grief. And then maybe even for some folks, convincing them that they're not a Christian. Yeah. And I think there's, there's two ditches. Mm. Um, and the ditch of um, despair, if I feel this way, I'm probably not a Christian, mm. or denial, which is where a lot of people go, hey, he's coming to church, everything's fine, loving Jesus, praise God. Yeah. And inside, they've got deep theological questions that they just don't think they have permission to ask. Wow. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that you've done a lot of digging in regards to the the people of Israel, the kind of the, the ancient roots of lament and God giving, because this is a, this is a gift, a language that he gave his people. Um, can you can you inform us a little bit of that? What where does this in in regards to because because I feel like there's a, a lot of the reason we don't understand the Bible in our modern context is because we don't understand the culture with which it, in the context that it was written, and so it then limits our understanding of who God is because we begin to see Him through the the lens of 2019 rather than the lens of in in this is the context in which this was written. So. Lament was something, it was a practice that God's people were instructed to, that they, it was, it, it was a very, it was a very um, customary thing for them. In fact, God gave them some kind of like parameters around it and all of that. Can you kind of parse that out for us, dive into that a little bit? What's the, what's the history of this idea of lament? Yeah, I think it goes just to the very foundation of what it means to be human and a Christ follower or in the Old Testament, a Yahweh follower in the midst of a broken world where, you know, the garden and the fall creates the first exile and lament is the language of, of the exile, mm. of a person who's separated from the way that life should be. And then throughout Israel's history, you find um, the, the people of God crying out to him in the midst of their slavery in Egypt. You find the um, people of Israel lamenting their exile in Babylon. You have the longest lament in the Bible reflects on the destruction of Jerusalem in the book mm -hmm. of Lamentations, where in the midst of a moment that everything about that scene screams, God hates you, he's abandoned mm -hmm. you. The foreign leaders just burnt your temple down and took away all the artifacts that you think represent the presence of God. And mm -hmm. even in that moment, Jeremiah says, mm -mm, no, 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 the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So wow. part of the, the challenge isn't just um, an Eastern Western thing, although it's part of the dynamic. Uh, I think Eastern cultures may understand intuitively lament a little bit mm -hmm. um, uh, more clearly, but I think part of it as well is that most of us in sort of a 21st century American Western context don't understand what it's like to be the other. We don't know what it's like to be mm. in exile. We don't know what it's like to have suffering that doesn't go away and how do you survive in the context mm. of that. And so lament comes out of long seasons of protracted grief where, look, we're going to be here a while and this is going to be hard for a season, and wow. we have to figure out how to survive spiritually and theologically when these dark clouds, they're not leaving. Like, this is going to be the way it is. And so we have to find joy, and we got to find contentment while at the same time trying to make it through this trusting in God. Wow. So I think that's, that's the story in the context of the scriptures um, from Genesis to Revelation that I think help us understand lament a little bit better. So kind of in, in some ways what you're saying is those who in our society, whether it be in Western society or, or other parts of the world, those who have been marginalized, those who have been oppressed, those who have been exiled, they tend to understand this a little bit better, more yes. intuitively. Yep, for this sure. Is, this kind of exercise out. I guess, you know, it makes sense to me when we think about um, the days of slavery, African-American slavery. Right. Well, think you of see, an American history. What would be the singular body of music or the kind of genre that would be best expressed in terms of lament? Mm. It'd be African-American spirituals. Right. 
And those were the songs that expressed both exile and expressed um, the grief of how do I deal with this in a way that tries to provide some level of hope. And so um, that experience creates the necessity of lament. So the the fact that remains is that every person, every Christian is going to experience hardship and they will end up lamenting. They just may not know what to call it at the time. Yeah. But if you know what this language is, it helps you to be better prepared for suffering in the future or to help a friend as they're walking through that season so that this very difficult trial doesn't become a a faith-crushing sort of moment, but instead can become a platform for the glorification of God. So what would, you know, what's the difference then between lament and uh, grieving or lament and... You know, weeping. What are the, I mean? We have these different terminologies yeah. that we just kind of maybe throw one over a different concept, and maybe we're not yeah. using the exact terminology. When you say lament, what exactly are you talking about? Yeah, in the distinctly? Bible, lament would refer to a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So that that's oh, okay. my definition to mm. try and put a little bit of. Um, context or handles on the concept. So every human being cries. Like that's how we're right. born into the world. Like you don't have to be a Christian to cry, but you have to be a Christian to lament mm. because a lament says to God, I'm turning to you in my pain because what I know to be true about you, I don't know how that fits with what I just experienced. Mm. I don't know how your goodness intersects with this tragedy. And Christians know that distinction Mm. theologically. And then in the midst of their sorrow, they turn to God. And if you were to look at the Lament Psalms and the Book of Lamentations, they continue to take the promises of God and they pull them into the moment and say, no, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is Mm. true. And every lament has a um, a but or a so that or so then sort of pivot mm-hmm. in it where the psalmist goes, this is all true, but I know that God is good. And yeah. I think um, only Christians are able to make that transformation because only Christians know the, well, there was Good Friday, but there was also Easter yeah. Sunday. Um, we have the fall of the garden, but we have the cross of Christ. Mm-hmm. We have these momentary afflictions, but Jesus is coming mm-hmm. again. So Christians understand the theology behind that that pivot um, between what is now and what is yet to come. And that's why lament is this prayer where I'm talking to God. So grief could be a part of it. Tears could be a part of it. But I think lament is uniquely Christian mm. in terms of its expression. Do you think practicing lament would in some ways uh, help to lead us into forming a proper theology of suffering? Because I'm thinking about the listener right now who maybe maybe they're pretty new to this whole Christianity thing and they've not had this background. I mean, for you and I, both in our circumstances, we went to Bible school, we were teaching, preaching messages on suffering. We were trying to help other people in suffering. We had some kind of a construct for it and then boom, tragedy befalls our life, right? And so again, it became this, what you said earlier, a test of our theology. It's like, man, I've been preaching this stuff. I've been preaching forgiveness is this just lip service or is this something I'm actually that I actually believe right. you know and then and it caused me caused me and you to lean into the lord and go okay show me how this construct of the right. theology of suffering really is 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 true is strong enough to hold me up in this that you're strong enough lord but what about the person who doesn't have that yet because they're so new to this whole equation this whole right. christianity thing maybe their tragedy right now has has brought them to this podcast or brought them into searching after answers and they've heard lean into God and they're hearing this lament thing. W- will it give them, will it help to build them a construct for suffering? You know? Yeah, it could certainly. Um, I mean, you could also um, understand the construct of suffering and then, or and lament rather, and then not put it into practice. So simply mm-hmm. understanding that it's there is one thing, but actually embracing it as a pathway, that's a different decision. Mm-hmm. And so it requires uh, a step of, of faith to say, I'm going to enter into this lament. Because a lot of people in the midst of their sorrow, they end up giving God the silent treatment. They're mm-hmm. either angry at him because yep. he's done something that they don't feel like is fair or just, or they don't even know what to pray. Or in some cases, you know, they've just prayed about 
something so long that they're just really disappointed yeah. and they've run out of the willingness to dare to hope again. Yeah. It's like the New Living Translation renders Lamentations 3 this way, um, I will never forget this awful time and yet I will dare to hope. Mm. And one of the scariest things to do is to hope again. It's to, to believe that yeah. this could change only to have your fears come true again and yep. have your hope just be, be disappointed. Yeah. But if you know that... Lament could be a framework. Think of it like um, railroad tracks, a rail along which you could push your grief. Um, those that, that rail involves turning to God, bringing our complaints, asking boldly, and choosing to trust. So those are mm. four key elements that they appear in most of the laments, not in every single one uh, of them. But you can take your pain and sort of push it down that um, that pathway and you could, for instance, if you're a new Christian, you could read Psalm 13 and see the way that the psalmist is gut-level honest. Mm. How long must I take comfort in my soul, he says in verse 2, having sorrow in my heart all day long. And then it ends with, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. And it's like, mm. wait a minute, that's verse 6. Three verses early, he was saying, how long are you going to forget me, God, forever? Yeah. And that's that's what real Christianity is. It's realizing that I can have really deep questions and yet also still really trust God. And that's those great. two things are not mutually exclusive. They right. just both are. Right. They're just there. And a new Christian could look at some of the Lament Psalms and they can see how this is worked out mm. in individual suffering, in corporate suffering. They can even see how it works out when they've blown it personally. Mm. And you're lamenting not the loss that's yeah, happened Psalm to you, 51. But, yeah. the, but the loss right. that you created. Yeah. Or there's also Psalms that deal with injustice. And yeah. what do you do when um, Psalm 94 says, when they frame injustice by statute? Yeah. Yeah. And what do you do when the system is like working against you? And mm. it's just like, what do I do with this? Well, the Bible says you can lament, and here's the language that you can use. Mm. Or today I was studying Psalm 55. I'm going to give a talk to... Uh, some ministry leaders about betrayal in ministry. And, and mm. it says his words were smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. Mm. And there's just words in the Bible that make you just go, man, that's really helpful to hear. And that's wow. why I think laments are unique in their ability to speak the painful language of people who are walking through sorrow. Wow. Um, you said that this was something that, okay, not only you guys were obviously wrestling with it in a personal tragedy, but also it, there was a parallel thing that was happening in, in your in your pastoral ministry. Simultaneous to it, you were wrestling with it pastorally. Was that because you were, you know, you were trying to help the people of your congregation deal with some things as well? Or what, what did you mean by that? Well, I just meant that, um, yeah, I'm running into really difficult scenarios with uh, people in my church. And I'm trying to have better mm. answers. I'm trying to take my theology of suffering that I learned in um, seminary and then like, how does that work in the hospital room when a spouse yeah. is dying of liver cancer? Yeah. And what do you say in that moment? Right. And um, how do you appropriately exhibit pastoral care and there's a lot you shouldn't say. Um, and then additionally, how to think about in my own life, what is the role of suffering? What is the role mm. of suffering in my own development so that I could think about um, the value of it for the sake of my own growth, but also, you know, um, you know, Second Corinthians talks about death is at work in us, but life in you. And what is the value of the suffering pastor for the sake of the life of his people? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the best messages I think I've probably ever preached were messages that I thought that's going to go nowhere. But because of the brokenness of yeah. my soul, right? It it had a uh, empowerment by the Spirit that just landed on people's hearts differently. Yeah, and I think trying to figure that out was a um, a journey that the Lord mm. seemed to have have led me on. I kept reading things about suffering kind of accidentally, kept hmm. reading books and that intrigued me. So I went to another you know, thing, was at a conference and was like, man, it feels like the Lord's kind of lining some things up here. Is that what you felt like when it came to prior to losing Sylvia and this it idea was, of preparation? Yeah, of actually exactly a year before I came back from a conference and my wife was like, what is, what's up with you? You look like you're really troubled. And I just, I went to bed that night saying, honey, I don't understand. And I'm a little scared, but I feel like 
the Lord's preparing me for yeah, something right. based upon what I heard this weekend. And I don't know the implications. Yeah. And I wondered, yeah, just being emotional and was yeah, moved right. by a sermon, you know. And so she's a good wife, can kind of ride the ups and downs of my uh, my thoughts and emotions. And then literally a year later, um, yeah. it, we're here. And I just I see the Lord's kindness and trying to maybe get my head around mm-hmm. this in my heart before... We had to walk through the valley, but there is no way that you can really prepare yeah. um, fully yeah. uh, for suffering. There are some things that you can do, but you can't fully prepare. Well, you just you just keyed in on it, this idea of God's kindness and His mercy in the preparation of the process. Um, I felt the same thing, mm. you know, before Amanda was killed. I had uh, she and I both felt this thing a few weeks before everything happened. We we both sensed that God was preparing us for this for some season of suffering, for some season of loss. Um, and we, we thought that it was because, you know, we thought she would, she was pregnant. We knew that we thought it was maybe that sure. we were going to lose the baby or there were lots of things that were happening around us. The same kind of thing. We heard a message from pastor Levi Lesko, uh, two weeks prior to everything happening with Amanda, where he shared his story about losing, mm-hmm. uh, their daughter, uh, Linya died in his arms at five years old. And then it was just such a powerful message. It left us in tears as we're listening to that. We just had this strong sense preparing us for something. And part of it was to a feeling inadequate in some ways as a young pastoral couple planting a church, helping other people navigate really difficult things when we had not gone through something very difficult. So we were like confronted with that. And at the same time, hearing all of this going on around us, feeling like God was preparing us, almost bracing ourselves that God was preparing us for something. And yet what you just called that is God's kindness. Right. Yeah. Can you unpack that for I me sure a little can. bit? sure can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that just kind of flows out, and I uh, don't often think how that can uh, land, but I, it's a good thing you asked that. I'll also talk about it in terms of hard... I get it. I, I understand I, I what you... <laughs> I know you do. Sure you do. Sure but you the do. listener... And that's the thing sure. is, like, that's why I love having you in here and why I want to keep talking about this, I, the, the theology of this, because we say these things. Right. Yep. And and I feel like sometimes I'm, I'll say that, man, it was God, God was so kind in this, and people are looking like... Kind? How? You're crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, or also, uh, or I will also talk about it in terms of uh, hard providence. Mm. So, and um, so, what I mean by that is this: that in the midst of things that are inordinately painful and feel outrageously hurtful, that we believe that there is kind intentions on God's mm. part with a plan that we can't yet see. So William Cooper, who wrote God Moves in Mysterious Ways, says that mm. the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. He then says, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Mm. And that's just really helpful um, to think about. Like you're flying in an airplane, you're below the cloud cover, it's all cloudy, and it just looks a particular way. It's just a matter of perspective. If you go another ten thousand feet up and you're above mm-hmm. the clouds, suddenly now it's all yeah. it's all it's sunshine. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you and I would not be having this conversation without deep loss in my life and yours. Yeah. And so, God has then allowed for other people to be helped in some small way by that conversation that makes its way into messages, into content. Mm. And I would have never chosen this, never. If I had to choose between a book and this message and my daughter, right. easy choice. I'll take Sylvia all right. day long. Right. And yet God had purposes that I see as kind and helpful. So yesterday I'm at a hospital, stopped in to see a family, and they had read a few things that I had written, and that material was incredibly helpful to them mm. in their moment. That doesn't happen without the hard providence yeah. of the past. Yeah. And so it's an unwelcomed uh, bruising that then creates an opportunity for God to receive mm. glory. And so if you see that through that lens, you can say, look, this is a hard kindness of the Lord. That yeah. Somehow this is going to work out towards kind ends, and you just have to believe that when in front of you it it doesn't feel very kind. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to go way off script here for a second. It's very much on this topic, but I was not necessarily planning on asking you this. This is, ha- this is beyond our contract? <laughs> <laughs> but I have you here, and, our, and, and Taylor, our podcast producer, is going to be mad at me because we're going to go way over time. That's okay, because right, I kind of call the shots in this All one. All right, so. click, click, seatbelts on. <laughs> All right. 
I have been wrestling with a, I don't know if it's a theory so much, but it's kind of being constructed as one. But I'm speaking from the perspective of a young pastor, right? Who, uh, my particular story is, uh, you know, so God planted this dream inside of me a long time ago. It's like, this, this like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the stirring of the soul, mm-hmm. right? When he called me to ministry and started, started downloading different vision into my heart. This thing, this mind's eye where I could see the thing that it's like, okay, God wants to do something really big. And so I surrendered my life going, Lord, I'm going to do whatever. Like, I don't care. I just, I feel like there's this, this large thing that you want me to be a part of and you want me to cooperate with you in and partner with you in. And so I'm everything. Doesn't matter to me what it is, right? You say these things. And as a pastor, especially in today's culture, where you have the Instagram, the, uh, um, you have so many pastors who are, um, they're making big impacts in the world, but they're making big uh, platform impacts. People are, people are seen, right? People are, they're, they're becoming quote unquote famous for it, right? So you begin to think, man, maybe that means I'm going to lead a big revival, right? I feel this stirring. Maybe it means I'm going to like lead this big congregation or plant this church, or you start having these dreams and these visions of this. And, and I would say that this is probably true of so many pe- people that I've talked to, right? But then, um, I used to say this about one of the pastors that I served under. People would say, man, I just want to be able to get to that place right there. And I used to say, well, you, you want that platform, but you don't want to go through the punishment that that pastor has gone through. And that was an easy thing for me to say from a cognitive perspective. Right. And then this happens mm-hmm. in my life. Struggling church planters were trying to get a church up and going, and then this massive tragedy happens, and it ends up, in some ways, catapulting our family into the spotlight, and and it becomes this very bitter thing because we're like, this feels like the fulfillment of, or part of the fulfillment of this thing that God put in my heart a long time ago, but this was the cost, right. And I began wrestling with that a lot theologically and going, wait a minute. And then I, and I, and I remember in college reading about the prophets and, and they, they made such a huge difference in, and, and, and some tried to make a huge difference in the people of Israel. And, and yet they were in some ways put through a lot of punishment mm-hmm. in order to have that mouthpiece. But as I'm wrapping my mind around it and going, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why this impact, and yet it was at this cost. And like what you just said, a hundred times over, I'd choose, I'd choose Amanda, right, over this. And yet this, in some ways, has become this weird fulfillment of this promise that I felt like you planted inside of me a long time ago. Well, I just think that that's. I mean. Jesus has said that unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And so I think, I think part of the challenge with people heading into ministry that they need to understand a robust theology of ministry suffering, and it, that's normative. I mean, mm. the, the crazy thing is, is that your experience, my experience, that we could line up 100 uh, pastors and or significant folks in terms of ministry influence and forget the platform, mm. what really comes through and, and what seems as though the Lord really uses in people's lives is the combination of message through mouth and message through life. Mm. And when those two things combine, that's where real life change seems to happen. So for instance, I you know, we had church last uh, weekend over Labor Day, we had uh, three young communicators who preached in each of our service, mm-hmm. and they were kind of nervous. One guy had like 13 pages of notes. It was crazy. <laughs> and before we were all gathered together with all of our production staff, all of our elders, all of our pastors, and I just said, hey, anybody remember what I preached three weeks ago? Mm. Nobody. Nobody. I didn't even remember what I preached three weeks ago. Okay. And I used that as an illustration to help remind them, look, do your very best with a sermon, but realize that in the end game sermons in and of themselves do not 
are not sufficient, right. that it needs to be content combined with proximity and, and life's message. And you think about the people who've influenced your life. I'm sure it's yep. the same as it is with me. It was person and message. And so I think in order for that person to be um, able to really platform the gospel uniquely, it comes at a particular yeah. cost. And I think that's just I think just that's just part of it, and it shapes how you preach. It shapes how you lead. Yeah. Um, and then the question I think underneath your question is, man, at this cost though. Yeah. Right. And that's a really, I mean, that's a really challenging thought. And my only answer to that is, well, um, that seems to be the gospel. Mm. It seems that seems to be the model. Jesus yielded his right to be in close harmony with the Father and the Spirit, takes on human flesh, dies a um, criminal's and shame-filled death in order to redeem people. And so it's just sometimes it's a bit surprising to me that we would think that ministry, or for that matter, really the Christian life, would be anything different. Mm. But the cost is really hard. Yeah. And... Um, and yet I think that's what's part of what it means to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. And what's interesting, you know, we, we another thought would be, I think that in our uh, Western American culture, we view that through a particular lens um, as um, unusually hard. And yet I think if you look at other cultures that are facing persecution, even means what it means to become a Christian. Mm. To become a Christian means that you're signing up for a really, really hard life. Yeah. And that's just not the environment that we live in. And so for many of our people, suffering feels like the anomaly. We're in another culture. Uh, suffering is actually a validation that right. you're legit. Right. right. Baptism doesn't cost you anything in our culture, except, you know, yeah. an extra set of clothes. <laughs> um, but in, in another context, you could lose everything yeah. because you've gone public with your faith. So I just think mm. that's a helpful paradigm for us to think through uh, in regards to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what real Christian ministry is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're majorly disadvantaged in our uh, context in the Western American United States privileged United States context. Um, I think we're disadvantaged when it comes to really establishing a good, solid, uh, right perspective on pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Because um, everything around us, we're inoculated with comfort, inoculated with trying to you know, build in and hedges of safety around us in all things, right. safety and success. And right. then, you know, um, it just really, I think it limits us in that. You, you were mentioning earlier about um, even you as a pastor sometimes, well, you didn't say this, but I'm inferring this, you struggle to have the right words to say when you step into a context of ministering somewhere right. else who's going through intense suffering. Although, you've written the book on it and right. you've lived it. And so you of all people should have the right words to say, first of all, I think that should be very comforting to the listener because every listener listening to this goes, I don't know what to say to somebody when they're, how do I enter into that with right. them? But what are some things that you would counsel people in as they're going, I have a family member or I have a friend or, you know, in their unforeseeable future, they might have somebody that they're going to, the Lord's going to call them to step in and enter and be the presence, the ministry of presence right there. How would you advise them to pastor well in that? What are the right things to do, the wrong things to do? Yeah, the, the first and most important thing is to be present and physically present if possible and let your words be few. Mm -hmm. um, even if you think you know um, answers to questions or things of that sort, um, you know, one writer says, in my grief, just sit beside me in, on my morning bench. Um, and the idea is, I'm just here. I love you. I don't know what to say. And I'm just really, really sorry. Um, and so kind of just entering into that space and being there with that person means the world. The fact of the matter is, at that moment, giving them particular instruction about how to suffer um, those words um, could be helpful more than likely in that moment that suffering person is going to have a hard time even receiving them. Yeah. The time to prepare for suffering is actually, frankly, beforehand. And so mm -hmm. pastors, good pastors, prepare their people so that their theology kicks in when yeah, the hardship good. comes. Yeah. Um, the other thing to not do is just to be very careful that you don't try and create associations that um, you think 
help you to understand the person's grief yeah. that you're walking through. In other words, like, oh, you know, I had this thing happen or whatever, and right. you're trying to create an understanding oh, or a re- yeah, relating People with, make yeah. really, really bad decisions yeah. Yeah. and say really dumb things. Like a family in our church, they had lost a, a, a daughter older in life. They were in, this is a true story, they were in the receiving line, and someone came up to them and said, you know, we're really sorry about the loss of your daughter. And they're like, oh, thank you very much. And they said, yeah, we know how you feel. And they said, do you do? And they said, yeah. Or, our dog died last week, mm. and so we're just really mourning. And you just, I mean, you just want to tell people, Shh, oh no, Shh, yeah, please, yeah. please, right. please. You know, it's just, Jeez. Um, so people say really um, dumb things, they say really unintentionally hurtful things mm. because grief makes them uncomfortable and they really don't know um, what to say, and so they just they say too much. Yeah. And then the other thing to really help is eventually the funeral happens and it's over, the flowers stop. Everybody else goes back to their life, and you have to figure out how to live in this new normal. Right. And birth dates and anniversaries and remembering, mm-hmm. um, those things matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one way you can really serve and help uh, hurting families is just to be sure that that person in that grieving person's heart is not forgotten yeah. by family members and friends. Um, one person once compared loss to like it's an amputation yeah. that heals. Yeah. But that person's always going to miss a limb. They're going to be yeah. they're going to make it. They're going to survive, but they've been wounded yeah. and that wound will heal, but it will always be a reality. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great comparison. Mark, this has been an awesome conversation, man. I appreciate so much you taking the time to do this. And uh, I want to make sure the, the listener hears the name of the voice dark or the name of the book is Dark Clouds Deep Mercy. And um, there's so many great, great things in here. If you're currently going through a season where you're grieving the loss of something, it doesn't have to be of some of something. I feel like everybody needs to have this language of lament, no matter what you're going through, because we all experience loss in some way. And it really drives us to uh, the heart of the of the Father and getting to know the heart of the Father. And so uh, make sure you pick this up and um, you can listen to all of Mark's amazing sermons, college. What is it? What's the website, Mark? Yourchurch.com. Yourchurch.com. Um, Mark's an incredible Bible teacher. I would highly recommend you go on and listening to that. And um, and Mark, is there other places that people can kind of follow? Uh, write what you you have a blog? Do you have yeah, I have a little blog. Just markvrogup.com. Mark v r o e g o p dot com and. Uh, couple things on social media, stuff like that. So Awesome. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time. Dave, it's been great to be with you. Thanks for the conversation. Hey, Davey, that was such a powerful interview wow. with Mark. Yeah. I mm-hmm. love what he had to say. Yeah. Um, he's brilliant, Hard too. things to hear, but he's brilliant. Oh Isn't he brilliant? Like, sometimes I hear people like that, and I'm like, <laughs> I wish I wish I could just, in some ways, have some semblance of a thought. The way I literally <laughs> was having some of those thoughts when I was listening to, like, he's so articulate. Yeah. And and we've talked about this. His voice is so authoritative <laughs> and I wish I had that as well. Well, I was I was kind of intimidated. I was intimidated while I'm interviewing. I'm like, <laughs> don't say anything really stupid. Like, sh- <laughs> don't put your foot make in your sure mouth. Make sure your, your questions are thought-provoking questions, They were. Davey. You did a good job. You really did. You did. I thought one of the most I don't know, just really tender moments was when he talked about his wife, Sarah, mm. after that really oh awful doctor's visit when she went out in the car and she said, God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it. Mm. And to me, that was so raw and authentic. I think mm-hmm. we've all felt that way. And I think that in and of itself was a lament, yep. right? Just to be able to express that to God. Yeah. And I, and I hope that as you guys listen to that, that it gave you permission to say those kinds of things to God. Yeah. It, it, it gave you an understanding to know God is not intimidated by my questions. He's not intimidated by my doubts. He's not intimidated by my crying out to him Yeah, in these moments. Um, in fact, I believe that those things are the portal to yeah. begin to discover maybe not some answers, but some right. meaning in it. Yeah. 
I think that's exactly right. I think those are the moments where we could we could make a choice to run away from him mm-hmm. or we go deeper into our relationship and our faith by saying, yeah. okay, God, I'm going to tell you all the things I feel right now. And it doesn't feel good to say it, but I'm going to say it because it's you I'm saying it to. I'm not yeah. saying it to an empty void. I'm saying it to you, God, and I'm trusting that you hear me in this. Wow. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah, it was a great, great interview. Hey, um, I want to thank Sleeping at Last, Mr. Ryan O'Neill from Chi Town, my yes, town. He's from Chicago. Uh, for providing the music for the podcast. The guy is so yeah. gifted. You can find Sleeping at Last music at iTunes or Spotify or any place where music can be found and streamed. So go ahead and check him out. Also, next week. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this, Aubrey? I don't know. I'm, let me hold on to something. Okay. Next All week right, is our 100th <gasps> episode. 100th episode! This is like a big deal. That's actually incredible. Episodes? Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. And for this 100th episode, we have a very, very, very special guest. I'm <gasps> partial. I'm a little biased on this one. <laughs> I hope you are. She happens to be the most gorgeous woman walking the earth. No... Offense, Aubrey. I'm sorry. Not offended at all. (laughs) My beautiful wife, Christy, is going to be joining us on this episode. And she's going to, for the first time, publicly share her story. Oh, I didn't know that. That's going to be awesome. This is the very first time that she has publicly, well, at least to this broad of an audience for sure. Um, She's done it in a couple smaller settings where she's begun to just kind of feel out for, I mean, this has been been a big growth thing for her to just say, hey, I'm going to put out my story and I'm going to, I'm going to trust, trust you, God, that you're going to do something with it. And oh, um, I cannot I'm wait. Super, can't wait to listen to it. Super proud of her for her, her courage and her uh, bravery in this, but it's going to be awesome. So we're going to kind of push pause on the normal flow of this. Uh, Aubrey won't be with us on this one. It'll just be Christy and I. We're going to kind of talk and dialogue. I'm going to ask her a lot of questions. We're going to talk about her story. It's going to be a great episode. So good. But then Aubrey will be back with us for the last episode of this um, of this month. And uh, you're going to definitely want to join us for our 100th episode. We've got some really, really great things planned in it. And um, so why don't you listen to this little clip from this episode with my beautiful wife, Christy Blackburn. Well, I didn't even remember the, ac- the actual memory, which is crazy because I was pretty old um, until I was in counseling. And I, d- I told them, for some reason, I'm having this reoccurring nightmare that mm-hmm. someone's choking me in my bed. And yeah. they said, usually that's because there's some kind of file cabinet in your brain that um, it's open. The door is still open and there's files just going around in your brain and it's not filed away. Mm-hmm. So they, they sat and they did this kind of um, therapy with me that basically was just trying to bring up some of those memories. And they prayed and they said, let's let's pray to God that he can just bring those memories back so we can grieve through them. Mm-hmm. And I remember that memory came back up and I just started bawling. And I, and I felt scared at that moment. I'm like, I don't want to know this. I don't want to know all the things that happened to me because it's too overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, who wants to feel all those those thoughts that just right. came up from you know all the things that happened when you were as a, ki- a kid. Right. So um, the the counselor said to me, Christy, you can either um, survive the rest of your life and mm. be numb to life, mm. but you're never going to feel the highs, the really yeah. good highs of life. But yes, you won't feel the lows, and you're going to mm. protect yourself. Um, or you can thrive, but it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. You're going to have to dig down deep and you're going to probably have to go through hell. 